0: Welcome everyone to episode six of The Heart Podcast. In today's episode, we deepen our understanding about the centrality of relationships in anti-racist teaching based on the critical and indigenous perspectives of our guests. A central point in this conversation is how we can examine and realign ourselves, not only in terms of our relationships with other humans, but with the land and life around us. It's a deep conversation, everyone. Let's get started.
1: We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Skattacoak, Golden Hill Paw and Nipmuc peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations.
0: Thank you, Omar, for that land acknowledgement. Joining us on this episode is Dr. Sandy Grande, who is a Quechua national and a professor of political science and Native American and Indigenous studies at the University of Connecticut. Her research and teaching brings together Native American and indigenous studies with critical theory with the aim of developing more nuanced analysis of the colonial present. Her book, Red Pedagogy, is now in its 10th edition and a Portuguese translation will be published in Brazil this year. With us today also is Dr. Chris Nelson, who is of the Diné and Laguna Pueblo tribes of the Southwest. She is an assistant professor of higher education at the University of Denver. Her research focuses on finance and higher education, which she studies from the student perspective as well as policy. She blends critical theory and indigenous perspectives and methods to explore the long-term impact of pre-college access programs. Sandy and Chris, thank you so much for being with us here in this episode. We're so excited to have you as guests. This semester, we've been focusing on intersectionality and how we can serve as a lens for anti-racist teaching. We love to hear from you both about how intersectionality shapes your teaching and the nuances that are important to you specifically given your own research about and with indigenous communities. Sandy, wanna get us started on this conversation?
2: First, again, just thanks for the invitation to be in, in conversation with Dr. Nelson. Uh, i be I'm looking forward to this. Um, Well, it. I mean, I, I for a lot of my classes, for the class that I taught this semester, um, I, I as I often do, I've had students um, read uh, the Combahee River Collective statement, um, where at least like sort of an earlier genealogy of the notion of intersectionality appears, and I like their articulation of it in particular, where it's really focused on interlocking oppression, the inter uh, interlocking oppressions, or the interlocking nature of oppression. Um, I think there's been so much unfortunate like confusion. Uh, Some um, just as a consequence of what happens when you put scholarship out in the world and it gets taken up. And some I think actually kind of purposeful about the misuse of intersectionality. So I think to kind of clear up that confusion, I often work with my students to just understand it as interlocking oppressions. And so not based on issues of identity. Um, in other words, um, and for me, it's it's central, particularly in these times um, to think about, um, you know, the different histories uh, of of Indigenous peoples, particularly in what we now call the U.S. and how that's imbricated with other histories um, and specifically Black, African-American, African diaspora peoples as those to me, which are the the constitutive spaces of subordination and oppression in in the formation of the settler state. So I think a lot about, you know, that crosswalk and then there's, you know, they also read a bit of Lisa Lowe's book and so and and she adds a sort of different valence of like what are the intimacies across the different continents and the different kinds of modes of oppression. So that's how you know, uh, one way in which I think about it and I think and then obviously like after we have that conversation of, of how these, you know, various systems of oppression inform each other we I mean I obviously spend a little bit more time specifically on settler colonialism you know the the various violences associated with genocide removal all the things that happen to Indigenous peoples.
0: That's really helpful Sandy um because you're right um in order to get to aspects of Indigenous communities values like being in community accountability to the community relationships it's important to understand that those, those things matter um, in particular communities, but the way it gets um, left out of the way we operate has to do with these systems, these are the larger systems that are at play that devalue being in community and in relationship and seeing um, an eco kind of model for um, our humanity. And for mm-hmm. being in community, I, so thank you for that that perspective. I, I want to um, ask you, Chris, what are you, what are you thinking? Um, I don't know if you can connect with what Sandy has shared or if you want to expand on, you know, other points. How does intersectionality shape your teaching, particularly given your own research and your work with indigenous communities?
3: Sure, so I, I have my little notes here and I was like, oh, I think Sandy almost covered everything that I was about to say. Um, But I think one thing that I would add is whenever I think about. And and I appreciate Sandy you, you offering that definition, because I think that is a real important part of understanding intersectionality is like, what lens are you coming from? And what is the goal of it? Right? It's not. It's really about disrupting the systems that hold power and. In a way for teaching, I specifically think about how knowledge is constructed. How is it lived out? How is it valued? And whenever, whenever I think about intersectionality, I really try to understand how. How do I operate within the systems through my own. Identities, right? So, how do I navigate as an indigenous woman within, like, which is technically like a oppressed identity, right? with it has been um, impacted by systems of oppression and how does that maybe. Orient my teaching with folks who come from different um, backgrounds and have different experiences and, but yet still focus a lot on the learning space. And how to and understanding that because we have all these different backgrounds that we're going to understand and have to disentangle that process differently. And some people's journeys are going to be a lot more longer and more intense because of maybe the privileged identities that they have this past year when I was teaching uh, race and racism in higher education. I integrated the cycle of socialization and cycle of liberation from Bobby Haro, and she, I feel like that work really helped in particular our, um, our white students. Like, think about the layers that they have been socialized and being able to then disentangle those pieces to understand how they have benefited from certain systems and how they need to then interrogate further and continually interrogate and how it's con- never done this work is never completed and and i also take that on for myself is that i'm always trying to understand like how do i show up in the classroom how what knowledge am i privileging and how am I actively trying to disrupt what I've even learned because I've grown up in the colonial education system, right? I mean, that's how I learned what good knowledge is what a good student is. And so how do I not replicate those spaces whenever I'm actually trying to teach and go through that very uh, process oriented of like grading and you know giving students feedback. So how do I make sure that I'm not replicating those systems.
1: Yeah, I really um, appreciate the perspective that the both of you bring to the classroom. And I, as as a student, you know, just like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm a, I'm a first year doctoral student, and it's been so interesting to essentially deconstruct these ideas and norms that have been instilled in me since, really, since I was like in preschool, um, That that the both of you touched on, you know, these ideas of of capitalism of just emphasizing the individual so much that i i'm really curious to know the response that you get from students because i've had my own disorienting dilemmas being in the classroom where it's like whoa this isn't what i learned <laughs> previously and it's and it's so great to know that there are various perspectives of looking not only at the world but different like specific disciplines and so i'm you know if i were to be in your classroom um, what would I experience or notice as a student and, and why do you feel that that's important. To you as a teacher, um, and I'm I'm wondering Chris, could you kick us off with that question, please?
3: Sure, it was actually something I was thinking about too, um, because when I 1st started teaching. I, I don't think I was as clear to the students while I was doing certain things and. I would try to authentically show up as who I am as an indigenous woman and how I learn and how I want to foster a certain learning environment, such as collaboration, such as you know shared knowledge. And um, what I was noticing early on was that there would be a lot of pushback and I would actually see that in my course evaluations or students, how they would engage with me and. It was really a moment of like, why, why am I doing this? (laughs) You know, when I, you know, as a faculty member, knowing that this is something that I need to you know, maintain to maintain my tenure and being able to say, okay. um, I, I need to be more clear and that's really what it kind of boiled down to was explaining to students. Like, this is why I'm doing this. This is the orientation of where I'm coming from and and I'll even name. The, the, the challenge that I've seen, because in my college, I am the only indigenous woman here and I would hear other colleagues in particular on um, those with privileged identities have a very similar approach to how I was engaging in learning. But they were the ones getting the acknowledgments of being very progressive while on my end, I was getting seen in the classroom as someone who was disorganized, not clear enough, not being. Um, You know, upholding a certain standard of what classes were being supposed to be and so what I would actually do is tell students that like I am doing this and because I am a brown woman, I show up in this way that you will probably question why this is happening. And if you feel uncomfortable, you can talk to me about that, but ask yourself why, like, why are you feeling this tension what within your background and your learning has. Um, Privilege certain ways of always doing something a certain way, and now I'm pushing back on that a little bit and we can work through it, you know, and and I'd always like claim. I always say that I'm very flexible and trying to meet the students needs, but I'm also very clear in that I want people to feel challenged. And that I myself am consistently thinking about that too is like when I'm in a learning space, when I'm in a knowledge sharing space, that if I feel 100% comfortable in what I'm doing, then I need to question, even like, what am I saying? And am I feeling like I've arrived? Right. But I don't want to feel that way. I want to know that I'm always trying my best and trying to push myself to think in different ways.
2: Thanks for that, and yeah, thanks for naming the you know very familiar struggles. I think of a lot of uh, faculty women and faculty of color in the classroom. Well, probably the first thing they notice is I'm really bad at math. <laughs> Anytime I have to add anything, it's like 99 sure I'll get something wrong, and and in some ways like just discrete information. So I share with them that I have like um. a um, mild dyslexia and then ADHD, and and the kinds of um uh you know challenges that those presented to me both as a learner and as a teacher Um, but i invite them into that space i share it with them and you know they keep me on task you know i i i tell a lot of stories i didn't realize i didn't tell my students i guess i had back-to-back classes once and then some students saw me on like crossing the the quad or something they're like that other class we heard you told them this other story and we didn't get that story and I'm like oh my god they talk, talk about my stories and then I realized that I, I must tell a lot of stories in class. Um, but in a more serious way, I would say that um they they have a sense um, because I make it explicit, but also that it for me, it's the course that they're um, that there isn't just sort of different perspectives that 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 on and many levels we're talking about competing. More visions of the world and so. You can't continue to have this. I mean, to use sort of Glenn Coulthard's language, it's like for indi- indigenous peoples to live capitalism must die. So you can't just be like, well, we can do this and then, like, they can do that over there and then we can just appreciate each other. It doesn't work that way. Um, And so trying to like, um, I guess, on some level, make that something that can be legible and something that they can sort of take on because it can be overwhelming, I think. Um, Is they is helping them to understand what it means to really be in relation to each other and to learn and work in collectivities. I try not to use the language of like group work because I don't actually think that captures what it is. Um, although I do say, and probably every class I've taught since I don't maybe the beginning, I've always had what I've called theory groups. Um, uh, a lot of the not a lot, but well, maybe a lot a bit of a theory wonk. So some of the reading is very challenging. And so I just say, listen, you know, you'll get. Even when it isn't challenging, if we all read the same book, we're all going to get different things from it. And so reading is a social practice in my opinion um and so it it, because they still usually start off in the beginning in a sense that they have to perform as an individual so they they try to get the right answer and come up with the smart whatever and especially when it is something that's theoretically challenging they get very afraid to like have a wrong answer so I noticed in 1 class recently, for example, rather than really dig into the concept of what the author was saying, they would immediately move to like that reminds me of this time in kindergarten or that. And I said, stick, I want you to like really stick with what is written and we literally had to do it together. And then this 1 woman was just like, I don't understand what it says. And I was like, okay, well. Let's literally try this together. Let's read the sentence word by word. And then we slowed it down to that sort of granular level. And the whole group was with her. You know, she was, she was like, oh my God, I understand it. And, and so it, it was like that was another transformative moment for me as a teacher. And that I realized, you know, and and this is true of myself, that <clears throat> reading as a practice is something we need to practice. Um, and then they, and then we moved from there to like a, the next week I could, they groups like went out into different places and I could hear them actually reading to each other. And it really sort of warmed my heart and then they figured it out together and I'm like, okay. Um, some did probably have a sense of what it, what it what they were reading prior, a deeper sense of it, I guess, in terms of the actual kind of theoretical discourse of it and the analysis of it. While others struggled, but they all were surprised. So there was also this other student um, that was you know, was very versed at reading theory. Um, and so was a little skeptical about the exercise, and she just felt you know probably a little overconfident that this was all like not new to her. Um, and it was actually she came up to me after class to talk about to talk about how much she learned from her peers by doing reading in that way, and that she uh, she was surprised and and that, you know, that was another nice moment. So, um, I think it takes, you know, rather than to just have an expectation, something I've learned as a teacher. Um, rather than have an expectation that they kind of work in in these theory groups to kind of understand what's there really. Is a practice and it's something that we have to do together and that. Um, you know, sometimes we do as a class. We'll just read out loud, like you know, and like like we did in third grade. You know, everybody take a sentence. And it, you know, I have found that sort of little reading practice has often opened the door to other ways in which students understand themselves as a collective learning environment um, that transcends the notion of they might, you know. Um, previous held notions, I think, about group work. That's really not about group work. It's about building relationships with each other.
0: Sandy, that's really interesting. Um, I have so many questions spurring in my teacher head right now, um, thinking about how students are responding to what it sounds like you're creating in your classroom a uh, learning, a collective learning experience, right? And knowing that. It's not a collective learning experience so that each individual leaves knowing more. But that by virtue of engaging in collective learning, the whole of the collective also learns something new. Um, I wonder how that's, how have that has happened in your classrooms over time? Um, How have students responded to that over time? Are they always um, bored for it? How do they respond to that change? Because that's a very different model for teaching than as long as each of you understand the point, we move on,
2: you know? Yeah, it's probably been the most challenging in the Zoom classroom situation. <laughs> um, I think we got there a little bit. I mean, it's always a journey, you know. Um, I'm sure some student, for some students, it never quite You know, comes together for them, but overall, I would say. um, Because it's also about accountability, right? Um, So I even say to them, look. Once they, they have to form a sense of groupness and sometimes it takes switching stuff around because not all groups can form a groupness right away and some do immediately and. I never know what the factors are Um, so it takes some shifting around typically, um, but they tend to kind of stabilize by the end. But once they, you know, I also do a lot of organizing. So I think it comes from that as well. Um, And so organizing is its own kind of, has its own kind of pedagogy um, in some ways. Well, I I don't need to go down that road too much, but it has its own sort of pedagogy. And I think, um, you know, organizers as an example, they often get frustrated like of, because there's often an expectation. Everybody has to do everything in the group. Um, and then at some point, we usually have a conversation about why that's an expectation. When some, as I already mentioned, like some students are like excellent at reading theory. Other students might be good, you know, just like. Administrative, like, organized, taking the notes or whatever other everybody kind of has a superpower. Um, and it's usually when you can make those. Um, superpowers explicit. To each other that a group that helps the group run more efficiently, if not effectively. And so. You know, once they start learning little things about what it means to be a group, um, I said, you know, some of you, one of you might come in and you're like, you had 10 exams a week before and you're like, I I did like I skim the reading. I'll be on it. You know, I'm like, you need to show up and be like, listen, I skim the reading 5 minutes before class. Can you guys help me? To understand, and then, you know, somebody may have had no exams or no papers and they read it. You know, chapter and verse and everybody in between and so that once they learn that they don't just show up and perform. But it's a space to be accountable to each other. I think that helps them. Um, um, I guess acculturate into that. You know, as you said, Milagos, it can be radically different from what they've had. I, I don't make the assumption. Sometimes they do have some students have lots of experience organizing as an example. But um, if it is different for them, that usually helps because they understand it can be a strategic place and it should be. I mean, groups and collectivities. That's the whole point. <laughs> it's to support each other. Um, you know, we talked about not self care, but squad care. I mean, we sort of do it all. And so they have to kind of figure that out over time
0: right no and absolutely i mean if you think about um students who may ad- identify as indigenous they might actually come with a, a skill set and knowledge around this collective learning and accountability um, or even students who are organizers in their local community might have that knowledge um i think what happens though is often in the classroom that um lived experience and lived knowledge isn't invited as a way of learning in traditionally um, white spaces um, or even in spaces that are not necessarily exclusively white they're historical colonial in nature and so then they practice this exclusion of this lived knowledge that could be helpful for collective learning but that we omit as a possibility traditionally from the classroom. Um, So I think it's really powerful that you create this space for people to hone in on their superpowers, like you said, and to leverage it for the collective good. Um, That just sounds um, empowering. And as a result, there's a collective good, but it sounds from what you're saying, Sandy, that there's also this individual growth that happens for your students. And um, that makes me connect with something that you actually wrote in your book, um, Red Pedagogy, where you ask your readers to examine their own communities, policies, and practices, not only to understand who they are, but potentially to reinvent themselves. And I wondered how you might carry that out in your classroom, or if you would give it, you know, um, some advice or suggestion to other faculty who are interested in teaching in ways that are anti-racist and um, decolonizing teaching, you know, what would you offer them as a way to, as an entry point um, for this self-examination that might help them reinvent themselves Toward liberation,
2: yeah, it's both. I would say it's both dialectical and dialogical. So it's not just the self; it's self in relation to, right? And so I haven't done this for a while, but I used to ask students somewhere in the beginning, like, "Who are your people?" Um, and you know, for native students, that's easy. Or you know, another students of color, but um, but it's often um, because of colonization. And you know, the kind of the violences of assimilation. A lot of white students think they don't have people. And it's like, listen, you all have people. I don't know who they are, you know, Star Trek people. I mean, it's not the same as <laughs> lying to like uh, an indigenous nation, but you all have like, and if they don't know, then I'll say like that's your assignment between now and the end of the semester. Like who are your people? And to really think about that, And then, like how, you know, There's conversation in a lot of indigenous communities about, you know, not just who you claim, but who claims you. Um, Who are you accountable to? Who do you belong to? Um, Who and what do you belong to? Like, we all belong to the land and to the water, right? So. um, And it, and I guess it's. If it's a project, it's like doing what you can to decenter the human. Um, Not just the individual, but the human, you know, Um, we're such a human obsessed society even in like the quote-unquote now there's like this new valence of radical literature on the post-human which just makes me look <laughs> because I think you're still centering the human if you're human or post-human it's still about uh, humanism so um and it's just so interesting it's such a challenge for um non-indigenous populations to really think beyond the human um to think beyond this world you know in catch we have we, we kind of keep in in play always three different worlds at the same time and so space and time are really uh, much more fluid and, and that's um, embedded in the language itself and so um, it, it might be a tall ask to decenter the human but honestly when climate scientists give us about 10 years before we're at a point of irreversible damage you know if not now when you know you're not going to decenter the human now when
1: i have to say that Something that stuck out to me uh, from both the answers that that Chris and Sandy that you've both provided is just um just how beautiful you both take the time to actually share this information with students and and push them and challenge them to think differently. I think in a way, you're almost practicing what you are and uh, you are exactly practicing what you're what you're preaching. Towards anti capitalism, when I think of capitalism, I think. Go, go, go no breaks. Um, Sandy, as you mentioned, profit incentive all the time, like, is it worth doing? And most of the time it's, is there money to be made? If so, then we should pursue it. And so I think you both over time. I've come to learn that. As a student, and as a teacher, like the greatest gift, and just as a human being, the greatest gift that we can give each other is time. And you both take the time. And you you bestow it upon your students, and and if they struggle, again you take the time to kind of walk them through the process. Whereas I've had so many experiences that I wonder if they've been tied to capitalism and this um, desire to just focus on the individual. That if no one like if someone's not keeping up, then they're left behind, and that in a way that damages the group and specifically that individual as well, and and not you know. Keeping um, just staying with with the with the group, um, and you know, Chris, I'm actually um, really excited to to ask you this this next question, just because I in my previous role uh, prior to starting graduate school, I was actually a program coordinator for a college prep program, and it, it was that specific job, um, in addition to previous roles that I've had in education, that steered me towards uh, pursuing graduate school, and so it. It uh, pivoted me in so many different ways, um, but but specific to you, Chris, I'm I'm curious to hear more about the the impact that critical theory and indigenous perspectives and methods have on on how pre-college access programs are conceptualized and delivered. Um, do you mind sharing more about your work on this and and how it informs your teaching?
3: Sure, and I think this actually ties in well with what Sandy was saying earlier about decentering the human and understanding us as part of a larger. Um, and very forceful, um, dynamic. I, I had this opportunity to start engaging in pre college stem when I was a grad student at the University of Arizona. Um, I helped coordinate um, the Native American science and engineering program and it was. It was during that time when I really started to um, had some really great scholars that supported me, Indigenous scholars in particular, uh, Dr. Lomawaima, um, Dr. Fox, both at the University of Arizona at the time. They, you know, were really encouraging and in centering Indigenous knowledges and perspectives, and so leaning into works like um, Deloria and Wildcats, Power and Place, uh, Dr. Kahete's um, Look to the Mountain. Um, all the way just to different narratives that indigenous people have written through their own experiences and being able to say, how do we blend these very much so grounded ideas of place into the curriculum whenever we're working in particular with native youth. And, And so through the years, I've just been able to kind of continue that thread in different ways. And most recently at the University of Denver, whenever I came here, i um we actually were i was it wasn't a cluster hire but there just so happened to be another indigenous faculty member in the physics department that got hired and then they hired a new native american uh, kind of support support manager and then we had like three or four indigenous um, grad students and we all just collectively started supporting each other and then it turned into like well let's do something like we need something to keep us here that's meaningful and We had worked already with a little, we all had most of us had children and so we had kids in the school systems and we were seeing the shortcomings that they were facing. So we reached out to the different Indian programs and started to conceptualize, like, what does it mean to support stem not from a standpoint of like, oh, go into stem because you can make a lot of money and there's a lot of great careers, but really thinking about how. It, we, can, we can reconnect to our indigenous ways of knowing through an educational space. And so what we did was we started to We focus on place based learning, and there's a few sites across Denver that have um, cultural significance for indigenous people. 1, mainly being table memorial grounds, which is South of Denver. And we really wanted to have our students be able to go out there, engage with different elders and knowledge keepers to be able to think, like, okay, how does science actually. Um, how has it pre existed? The notion of science, right? How have these concepts? How have our ancestors always been mathematicians been scientists knowing these different ways of engaging with the earth and understanding the earth? And so it was really a, an amazing time because we had. A scientist, you know, Dr. Cisneros, we had a Native American Native American studies scholar and Dr. Angel Hinzo, and then myself being in education. It's like, we just had this really like a, a blending of different perspectives coming together and our delivery and our just our personalities really meshed well. And we were able to bring on about 13 students onto the DU campus and help them not help them, but bring them into the space of seeing what can be done in terms of teaching science. And I um, and we continued this for about a year and a half with different uh, community events. and it, in in the end it would it really culminated down to, was a weekend activity where we had a local elder who had some eagles that he needed to process and he offered to um, bring in some of our students to teach them about this practice and the sacredness of it and um, it was probably one of the most life-changing experiences i had because we had um, another colleague who was a doctoral student in um, Engineering, and they had the Eagle kind of they were respectfully treating the Eagle, but then they were talking about flight and force and and really showing the students, like, how majestic and how special this this bird is. And the students were just sitting there, you know, being able to really touch and respectfully handle the birds in a way that um, were guided by a lot of elders and. I, I thought in my head, like, this is this is how students, this is how we have always learned as indigenous people and the ability to have our native youth learn from that was really um, a special moment for a lot of us. And we had community members you know, that weren't necessarily affiliated with DU or even didn't even have children. They just wanted to be there. Right? So this momentum that we really started to build was very special and the 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 whole idea behind it was how do we engage our community in learning and teaching and sharing of knowledge Um, all the while for us it was very like we just need a reason to stay within the academy because it feels it can be very draining and while the community work is even more intense at times it really brought a lot of special moments in time to us and it also allowed us the ability to think about what within the academy um limits and makes it challenging to do that work but then h- how do we just support each other to do the work right and to not make it so much of a challenge to then integrate it with with theory and knowledge so that way when we are writing our tenure documents like there is a way to connect it to this tenure process and for me that was really um helpful because we had a lot of elders that helped us kind of conceptualize it and um Yeah, so I think in terms of like that teaching moment for myself has actually helped me to further my graduate courses that I teach. Um, So, this quarter, I'm teaching a decolonizing higher ed class and within that work, we I've had some really great grad students that have been helping me and they together. What we did was we created a 8 day week and so we have everyone on an 8 day week and it's based upon Dr. Cisneros's work as a physicist in time and how we have the certain classes we still meet during the the normal like Wednesday night class kind of time but there's other tasks that students have to do and we really Disrupt that moment that notion of like participation, like, oh, you got to do all the work and on time, you know, but it's really about what is your intent behind the week and what is it that how can these activities that we've kind of outlined support that learning process. And within those spaces, we've also talked about like what grading means, like how do how do we disrupt this idea of A, B, C, D, like a, a student is a good, an excellent student, and so forth. And talking a little bit more about how do we engage in conversations of anti-racism, anti-colonialism, you know, to be able to really um, have a life-changing experience. And I'm just really grateful that I've been able to have that space to to live that out and to be able to think about the different types of ways that we can engage in knowledge sharing. And I, and I, and I believe our students are really, you know, they're, they're, their willingness to, to do that is really the reason why we're able to, right? Because I was really afraid that they would be like, no, I, I joined this class because I wanna read, you know, all these articles and I wanna talk about it. I wanna get it, right? But I was like, okay, we're gonna do a little bit of that, but we're gonna really do it. Like, we're gonna do the work what it would mean to think about decolonizing higher ed spaces.
0: Wow, I just want to be in both of your classes, (laughs) like you're both inspiring, you know, professors and your students are so fortunate to have you. Um, As we close out our conversation for today, I'm wondering if you could share what is one piece of advice that you would give to someone who's interested in um, at least what I'm seeing something in common across multiple things you have in common. One thing I'm hearing from both of you is the power of sharing knowledge and making that the norm of the learning experience. And I wonder if you have a piece of advice you would give to someone who wants to try to center that approach in their teaching. What would that be?
3: What would you say to them? Chris, can we start with you? Sure, I'm trying to, in terms of like just engaging in the work and. I have like some sticky notes that I put on my, you know, around my computer to just kind of remind myself and there's there's 2 that really stick to me a lot is 1 is it says honoring your family and yourself in this process. And whenever I. Feel challenged and whenever I'm feeling maybe even insecure in this process. It's like, I have to go to my, my the thoughts of my grandmother, right? Like, my grandparents and and asking myself, like, what does it would this make her proud? Would Would this make her feel like she did her job and also my mother too. And, and, I, and I think, to me, that's just a, a way to know that even if I messed up, even if I, you know, maybe had a misstep, that I, I know that they would still be proud of me is more important than if it's always making 100% sense all the time. And so, for me, I would say that finding those, those, those orienting and grounding people in your life and, and making sure that, that they stay, you know, at a, a really um, a, a prominent side of who you are, I think that's important.
0: Thank you, Chris
2: Sandy, what are your thoughts as a piece of advice you would give? Yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, similarly um, to Chris, I think. On some level, if you hold is the only learning outcome, if people are learning to be better relatives in the broader sense of that. Word and then for for teachers or folks who who. Need something a bit more pragmatic, I would just say, you know, what is the. um, to to never teach anything which you can't answer the question of like what is at stake you know what is at stake um you have to know the answer to that question if nothing's at stake then don't teach it (laughs) Uh, don't teach it um and maybe a third thing is like there's always a way i think to connect the classroom to the world beyond so like if you're you know kind of in chris's example like if you're Creating anti-racist curriculum, create anti-racist curriculum for somebody who needs it, you know, or like make it an actual, um, you know, inform policy somewhere, uh, you know, show up to in and with, you know, a community organization that needs and has asked for uh, support, um, whatever it is. I, there's a way to make, I think, to connect beyond and outside of the classroom. Um, I think that's always a good way to reground things.
1: Wow, thank you so much uh, to you both for for those uh, incredible answers. Um, And and with that, we'd we'd like to close out for today's conversation. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Grande, Dr. Nelson for joining us today for the powerful words of wisdom you have shared with us today for broadening our perspectives and for shining light on the urgency of collectivity. Uh, We truly appreciate what you do in and outside of the classroom to disrupt colonial education. And we're so grateful for your time today, for your willingness to share the wisdom um, with us and our audience today, and and really just uplifting the the amazing work that that you both do. And echoing Milagros' words like, so jealous <laughs> that I'm not in your classroom. But um, I, I hope that this isn't the last time that we all come together uh, in conversation. So uh, with that, thank you. Thank you so much. We would like to extend our gratitude to Dr. Sandy Grande and Dr. Chris Nelson for sharing their insights as they relate to indigeneity and anti-racist teaching. Thanks to them, we were able to explore notions of collectivity, community, and grounding our work in relation to those around us. We also appreciate their sense of urgency related to societal problems such as climate change in which they encourage us to ask ourselves, if not now, when?
0: We also want to thank the center for excellence in teaching and learning and the office for diversity and inclusion at the university of connecticut for their support to make this podcast possible because it takes a village and it takes heart